if you went and spent 100 bucks in a beautiful meal and you enjoyed that meal, um, what else could you have done with that 100 bucks? That is your opportunity cost. Welcome to the Dental Head Start Podcast. I'm your host, David Keir, and I've said it before on this podcast, we are very lucky to be in the industry we're in. We can help people, we can do productive work, but we can also earn good money for it. What's better than earning that great income? It's earning that income without having to actually go to work and that's the purpose of investments. That's the purpose of superannuation and that's what we'll do hopefully when we retire. If you're listening to this, you're probably early in your career, you're either earning good money now or about to in the future and the question is what do we do with it? A lot of us buy a car or buy a house or or just go and spend it on something but the thing we need to think about is the future and I think COVID-19 has made a lot of us think twice. This episode, we're talking with Dev Raga. Dev is a doctor with an interest in personal finance. He runs an awesome podcast called Dev Raga Personal Finance and it's got information, the basics on everything about finance. But because we're talking about finances, there's a crucial point I want to make. Obviously, I'm a dentist. I know nothing at all. And Dev is a doctor. He is not a financial planner. He's not giving you personal advice. We are just talking about generalities and we recommend that you contact someone to get your own personalized advice to make the right decisions. I strongly recommend you go back or check out his podcast and listen to the first few episodes and then pick and choose what you're interested in after that. But I think the messages that he gets across in this interview today are things that can literally change your life. Sounds dramatic. Let me know what you think. And recently, we've updated the website. So, it would be really interesting to hear what you think about that as well. Check out dentalheadstart.com to find all the things we're doing to help dental students become great dentists. Aesthetics is not just prepping teeth. If we want to be minimally invasive, we need to use aligners or some sort of orthodontics to put the teeth in the right place before we change their form. And of course, the pioneer of this is Invisalign. They've got the most experience, the most cases have gone through their platform and the most in-depth tools to use to get your patients from where they are to where they want to be. Once you're ready to provide aligners, Invisalign Go is the perfect entry point. It's the first step in becoming an Invisalign provider, allowing you to do relatively simple cases effectively and efficiently with their online tools. Go to invisalign-doctor.com.au to start your aligner journey today. So today we've got the pleasure of being joined with a fellow podcaster, but Dev Raga doesn't podcast in the dental space. He's actually a doctor and he talks about personal finance. And I think that's something that's so important right now. It's on a lot of people's minds. So Dev Raga, welcome to the Dental Head Start podcast. Thank you very much, David. And uh, it's an absolute pleasure. Well, it's a real pleasure to have you on because I have been listening to a lot of your podcasts recently. And I think with coronavirus and with dentistry being shut down for a period of time and now our guaranteed incomes being a question mark for a little while, it's really made us think about um, income. It's thinking about investing and thinking about the future. And I wanted to ask a really pointed question to start. As dentists and as doctors, when you get you know further through your training, we are lucky to have a really good income. We, we do earn quite well relative to the population. Does that mean we don't have to worry about the future? Um, so... Absolutely not, actually. I would sort of possibly argue the other way around. Um, One of the things that I've noticed um, uh, with doctors, um, and I'm sure with dentists as well in terms of comparative incomes, I mean, you know, doctors and dentists um, on average probably earn a quarter to $300,000 a year in terms of gross income. I'm talking sort of average. 
Um, obviously, some dentists earn a lot more, some doctors earn a lot less, etc. But um, this sort of mindset that once you become a doctor or a dentist, um, you're on that sort of money. So therefore, you can sort of take it easy and and uh, you know live a lifestyle that's probably a bit beyond that. Um, that sort of mindset. I do come across um, quite routinely in medicine, um, and and I think um, as doctors and dentists we're very vulnerable to that. And if we don't take charge of our personal finances early, um, then potentially what can happen is that um, you know doctors and dentists sort of think, oh yeah, three hundred thousand dollars a year, what could go wrong? Well, certainly from what I've spoken to uh, a number of doctors uh, since I started my podcast channel, a lot can go wrong. Um, and that includes, um, you know, I always say to people, you, you can't out-earn your stupidity. What, what that means is <laughs> essentially is just because you spend a lot of money, you can't out-earn that. Um, so if you're on a $300,000, you know, wicket and you're spending a lot of money, you can't out-earn that stupidity by increasing your income to $500,000 because guess what happens when you earn $500,000 lifestyle creep creeps up with you and um, and and I think that's that's fundamentally what I'm seeing across the board uh, particularly with uh, high income earners so it's 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 vital that if you do earn a high income you pay attention to it because otherwise you're a sitting duck for um, doing some of the basic mistakes that I see uh, and hear about all the time yeah, it's almost like because we are lucky enough to earn well, we just don't think about it. It doesn't come across our mind early enough and then we miss out on, you know, the years of compounding and and I guess when we come into a coronavirus situation and we're, we're told we're not actually allowed to do dentistry um, or, or medicine in elective procedures, um, we, all, we all sit back and think, wow, I didn't think of that. Um, you, you mentioned some people have reached out to you via the podcast and we'll talk about that podcast in a moment but um, can you tell us maybe some broad stories that you have heard about people who have got a bit unstuck? Yeah, so um, look, what what this coronavirus situation has probably taught a lot of people is that um, just because you're a dentist or a doctor or a surgeon or a physician or cardiologist doesn't mean that your life is, uh, uh, you know, financial difficulty free. That's number one. Um, and, of course, that's given them a lot of time to think about why emergency funds and making sure that you have investments early in life is very, very important. Um, and I guess one of the basic sort of um, patterns that I see in terms of questions uh, are people in their sort of late 30s, early 40s starting to think about their finances at that age. And the pattern is very clear, and that is they all wish that they could go back in time and start, you know, learning about finance and start to apply some basic principles early in their career. And I'm talking as an intern or as an, um, uh, uh, as an early resident medical officer, for example. Um, and the questions, the type of questions that I get is, you know, very focused on, you know, um, you know the typical question might be, I've got two kids, um, you know, I'm in my late 30s, um, I've just become a consultant surgeon. Um, I haven't invested anything at all until now. Where do I start? Um, and I guess one of the problems with that um, is that as you get older, um, and this is kind of a generalization, but it's kind of true, um, is that your ability to absorb information 
is much less. So, um, you know, as, you know, I'm, I'm 38 years old, um, so technically a millennial, but my knowledge of basic technology is far less than my 10-year-old. You know, I can, I can ask my 10-year-old to set up a home theatre system and she'll do it, no problems. I still <laughs> don't know how to operate that. Now, interestingly enough, when I was growing up, my level of technology savviness was much greater than perhaps my father and mother. So as we get older, our ability to absorb information is less. So when I ask them, okay, well, you've done all this training and you're now a surgeon or a physician, um, have you got any emergency funds or, you know, have you got any, you know, have you maximized your super? These are all sort of basic sort of things. And the common themes are, well, what do you mean? How do I do that? Uh, and I guess one of the things that I've learnt is that just because you're a high-flying doctor or perhaps a dentist or um, orthodontist or whatever it is, those skills, interestingly enough, are not transferable to the world of finance. It's a very common pattern that I'm seeing. Um, and the perception of the community is that if you're a doctor or if you're a dentist or a specialist, then you earn a lot of money, therefore you must be good at saving money and therefore you must be good at investments. Um, now, I have found it to be completely the opposite. Um, a lot of doctors don't do the right thing with their money and are very vulnerable to actually doing the wrong thing and be taken for a ride um, and at the end of it have nothing to show for it. Um, and I think, the, I mean, if your audience is listening to this and you're a budding dentist or a dental student, learn about finances because just because you're going to be a high-flying dentist doesn't mean those skills are transferable to the world of finance, particularly with personal finance. Yeah, that's um, it's a really good point. And there's something that um, I've been or people have talked about on the podcast before briefly is um, that golden handcuffs. You know, you start earning good money, so you start spending good money. And if you start making these decisions and implementing things really early on, you're you're going to not feel the pinch of trying to wind back the spending that you've already created. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. Look, I, I sort of reflect on my medical student years or even my sort of you know, upbringing, right? Um, so, you know, came to Australia as a, you know, seven and a half year old kid from India um, we migrated, first-generation immigrants, um, and, um, you know, life wasn't easy, but uh, my parents luckily found a job and, you know, provided very well for myself and my brother, um, and they did their bit by, you know, providing us with, you know, good education, uh, a home, uh, food, shelter, all that, so all the basics. Um, then uh, what, I, what I did realise was as I was growing up and when I did become a medical student, um, I had to work uh, to pay for the bills, and um, and then when I became an intern, what I what I realised was well, if I could live like a medical student, perhaps for another year or two after I became an intern, um, which I clearly have proved for six years as a medical student, right? So I could I could live on the yeah, basics. You can Most do it. students yeah. <laughs> in Australia are poor. Um, if I could do it, then I could do it as an intern. Then when I became a resident or a registrar, I said to myself, well, maybe if I just lived like an intern or a resident for those years, and of course, when I became a fellow, I said, maybe I should live like a resident or a registrar for a few years um, because I've already done it. I could do it. So what's interesting about um, doctors in general is that once they become doctors, all of a sudden they kind of forget uh, not not all of them, but but some of them forget that they've lived a life of reasonable, you know, quote unquote poverty, um, and then they start spending money because they start seeing a lot of money. 
Um, but I sort of, when I was doing medicine, I, I had a clear plan, and that is always try and live, you know, maybe three or four years behind what you're currently sort of earning, then save and invest um, or buy a house early or do something with that money. And what happens over time is that those habits that you generate, those behavioural habits that you generate, became ingrained. Um, and, uh, and, and of course, off the snowball starts, you know, starts off very slow and, 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 then, and then you sort of get into the habit of doing it and it just becomes automatic. Um, you don't need to think about it. You mentioned, um, you know, it becomes ingrained and we're going to later talk a little bit about behavioral finance or you talk about it on your podcast, a really important point. But I want to know what, um, you, you know, you talked a bit about your upbringing and um, that you had to work through uni, of course, like many of us. Um, what triggered you to actually make that decision? In terms of working through uni, you oh, mean? Sorry, or? To, no, to making the decision to, um, sorry, live a couple of years kind of behind your income, so to speak. Yeah, so... And to save and to I've invest. Always, I've, I've, I've always wondered, I've always wondered this sort of um, concept, right? I mean, um, when I first bought my house, for example, um, the interest rate was, I think, around 9%. Um, then after that, uh, this is back in 2009 and I was a, I was a, I was a resident, um, then the interest rates started dropping. And then, of course, what the banks did was they said, Dev, hey, interest rates are dropping, so let's drop your repayment rate. And I said, well, no, that's that's not right. I, I don't want that to happen. I want to keep my repayment rate the same as what it is. And, of course, the bank said, why would you want to do that? Because this frees up your cash flow. But I'm like, well, I want to do it because I've already lived like that before. Um, and I've sort of figured out early in even, even in medical school, I sort of figured out that if I applied those concepts of trying to live, you know, three or four years behind my current life, then um, that sort of enables me to um, save that money and invest. Um, and that sort of led into this sort of concept of understanding compound interest. Now, we all sort of understand compound interest. Um, you know, they sort of teach you in high school, um, perhaps a couple of lectures on it. Um, but certainly I was very much interested in that concept because I sort of figured out if I saved money and lived scarcely during my medical student years, I wanted to save up enough to pay for a house in terms of a deposit at least. Um, and, of course, by the time I graduated, um, I'd saved up a lot of money, uh, five-figure sort of savings, and that was enough for me to buy a house um, pretty quickly um, after I graduated from med school. Um, and, of course, if I had not done that, then after medical school as an intern or a resident, I would have perhaps had to spend that sort of two or three years trying to save up that money. I'm already sort of three years ahead now by doing that. Um, and, of course, the reason I sort of devised this sort of behavioural sort of, I don't know, um, you can call it um, scarcity mindset or sort of sort of behaviour of doing that is because that's a way for me to realise, um, you know, the advantage of compound interest but also to simplify uh, a savings process. Um, uh, I guess if I, if I said to someone, hey, you need to save, you know, you need to save, you know, 50% of your income, that might come across as drastic. But if I said to people, you know, particularly, you know, recently graduated surgeons, for example, I, I, I have a lot of colleagues who are surgeons who are recently graduated. If I said to them, look, you, you, you trained as a surgical registrar for five, six, seven, eight years, right? And you lived on a registrar salary. Now you're a consultant, so your salary is going to triple, quadruple. But imagine if you just lived on that registrar salary um, for the first sort of, you know, at least three or four years of your consultancy. Yes, it's not sexy. Yes, it's a bit of a pain in the ass, 
but that can potentially set you up for the rest of your life. Um, and I think that explanation uh, resonated with a lot of a lot of people. And it's something that I've instituted it in my own life, um, but I've just gone way back. If I sort of said, okay, if I'm an intern, I want to live like a medical student for a few years. Um, and the White Coat Investor sort of talks about this. He's a sort of a up-and-coming, oh, I think it's pretty big actually in the U.S., um, where he talks about this philosophy of, you know, live like a resident when you become a fellow for a few years to set yourself up. Um, and I guess in a way that helps you compound interest um, and it really works and it's quite simple. Yeah, if you use those um, calculators and you just have a look at what what if I added an extra 10 years to how long I'm saving for, it, it changes it by many, many millions. So, it's worth checking out. So, it, clearly, you, you know, you help some other people in the area of finance. You, you obviously chat about it and you're very interested in it. Why personal finance? Why has this triggered your interest? Well, what, what, one of the things that I learned in sort of medical school and, um, and uh, certainly in internship and residency and, and registrarship um, is that, you know, b- before I got into medical school, I always thought um, the higher your degree is, so, for example, a professor of surgery, uh, I always thought that that would mean that the professor of surgery is always on a bigger salary than the average surgeon. Um, what I did find out was that's actually not true. Um, in fact, it's quite the opposite, where the higher the academic or higher the qualification, it's not directly correlating with higher the salary. Um, and, of course, that's that's point one. So, you know, just because you're a professor of something um, doesn't mean that, um, you know, you're going to earn the big bucks and you're going to do the right thing. And, and that's true across, across everything, but more so in medicine. The second thing is my upbringing as a first-generation immigrant was, you know, we had to, you know, come to the country and seek opportunities and take advantage of opportunities. And um, uh, and we're very lucky, you know, to live in Australia. Um, I think it's, you know, one of the best countries in the world um, and, you know, relatively equitable society, um, certainly when I was growing up. Um, and uh, therefore sort of using those sort of scarcity principles and applying it to my own life, um, it it was just sort of something that was ingrained during childhood. You know, always try and maximise your opportunity, always try and minimise your opportunity cost. Although at the time, it wasn't worded like that. It was sort of like, hey, Dev, just make sure you do well at school, make sure you try and get into medical school, try and maximise your opportunity because opportunity is there. Why would you want to waste the opportunity? Um, and that's what sort of got started in terms of trying to maximize life opportunity. But of course, then in medical school, that triggered a sort of interest in personal finance to try and maximize, you know, personal finance opportunity. Um, and of course, these behaviors, this is not something, David, that I've developed in the last sort of five or 10 years. These behaviors I've developed over many, many, many years. And I think that's why I tell medical students and residents and interns, try and develop your behaviour early because you want to make sure that you have good behaviours early, just like you don't steal, you don't try and rip off people. They're all good things that we all do, but you just need to apply some basic financial behaviours early in your life so that it becomes automatic later in life. And nowhere is that more obvious is when I get private messages on Facebook or telephone calls or SMS some very, very smart people who've spent all of their life dedicated to their profession, which is fantastic, but have just missed 10, 12, 13, 14, 15 years of their uh, lives trying to focus on their career, which is fantastic, but have completely, you know, uh, missed the ball in terms of their 
personal finance. Yeah, it's a, it's a common story. It's easy for us to just focus on the thing we know, but you can set and forget some simple things with finances to change your whole world in 20 years' Absolutely. time. I, this The story you mentioned about, um, you know, first-generation immigrant, um, I, we hear that a lot on this podcast about the stories of these great clinicians and great people in our industry, um, and I think that really it does set a fire under you from the sounds of it. I, I you know, my parents were born in Australia, so um, I don't have the same story, but what I I was a very simple family, didn't have a lot of money, single-income family. And then my grandma, when I was really young, she she said, if you save money this year, I'll double it. And I was like five or six, I don't know, I'm really young. And I saved I saved like $100 in pocket money or something crazy like that and she doubled it and it was amazing. I got two lessons. I learned how to, um, the well, I guess the impact of saving, but I also learned, um, what's the word for this? Um socialism mm. i guess because my sister saved nothing mm. and she got a hundred dollars mm. as well mm. of course yeah <laughs> but those those early those early lessons um they, they make a big impact and that's one of the reasons i'm, I'm very and, interested and, and in i think with your grandma well. it's a very good life lesson um i think um i think one of the things i mean certainly i've got two young children um one of the things i'm trying to teach them is that Life is, you know, money doesn't grow on trees um, and, you know, uh, we dad works very hard for his money um, um, and we have things um, today that I didn't have as a child but never once take any of this for granted because, um, you know, I see it every day where my patients who come in sick, uh, you know, uh, and, and I guess it's, it also applies in dentistry where our patients who fall sick due to illness um, it, what we don't perhaps see um, uh, as openly as perhaps in other countries like in the United States is how it wrecks their lives in terms of finances. Um, it's not something that um, struck me up until perhaps when I was a registrar or, you know, when I, was, uh, when I finished my fellowship when, you know, you, you give them an X-ray slip and say, go get an X-ray done, and you all of a sudden realise that X-rays are only free in public hospitals if you go out the door and get an X-ray done somewhere else. You have to pay for it. Um, and then when the patient doesn't come back, you sort of realise, oh, they didn't get their extra on oh, because they couldn't afford to do it. Um, so we work in that environment all the time, um, and I'm trying to teach my children that, um, you know, all of this is good, life's good, we're very lucky, we're very fortunate, but, you know, coronavirus is a great example of something that can be taken away very, very quickly, um, and you've got to be prepared, just like... You prepare your holiday. We spend so much time preparing for our holidays, <laughs> for Christmas, for presents, for birthdays. We, you know, um, I organised my um, daughter's birthday party a couple of years ago. A lot of preparation went into that. But I find it interesting that people are not as prepared or interested in their own everyday personal finances, um, which to me has always sounded a bit bizarre. But I can see how people can sort of completely you know, uh, not pay attention. It can very easily happen. Hmm. It's a bit of the head in the sand kind of mentality. Hmm. And so you've um, obviously you've um, started a podcast on this. This you're a medical doctor, but you're talking about personal finance in your podcast, which I really encourage everyone to listen to. I think it's fantastic. Tell us a little bit about the the, the vision, the mission of the podcast, and and what you're doing there. Yeah, interesting. So I've been podcasting. So it's called Dev Raga Personal Finance um, Podcast, and it's available on Castbox and Anchor mainly at the moment. The reason why I started it uh, was actually uh, not to be a podcaster, <laughs> believe it or not. The reason <laughs> I started it was because I needed to show, I needed to have some sort of way of showing my children 
um, a blueprint of some of the basic financial things um, that they can apply in their lives in the rare event that I'm not around or something happens to me or they get a bit older and they need some sort of reference point. Um, and the thing is when you, I mean, obviously, um, you know, kids are very observant. So, uh, you know, my, my, my children are already observing some of the financial sort of things that I'm doing and I, and I do it very openly within the family. It's not a secret that I have a podcast. It's not a secret uh, that we have investments and Vanguard and this and that. But hopefully one day they'll listen to it and they can apply those basic principles. That's the reason why I started it. The original episodes was only going to be 10. Then I floated it to, <laughs> um, uh, to a couple of uh, friends and family and they listened to it and they said, oh, pay yourself first. I've never heard of that before. That sounds pretty cool. Uh, oh, maximizing super. I've never heard of that before. Oh, you can just ring up your bank manager and get a better home loan rate. <laughs> I didn't realize that as well. Then they said, hey, Dave, why don't you just keep doing this? So my podcasts are not about, um, you know, specifics about, you know, you should do this. So it's not about financial advice. It's about basic principles that you can apply in your own life. And the first 10 episodes, um, are, uh, everyone should listen to that, I think, because it's got the basic premise. And then it sort of built it up on investing. Then I go into economic theories and inflation and investing principles, etc. Um, but until you get those basics right, there's no point talking about, you know, sequence of returns or ETFs or index funds or investment bonds or whatever, because that's all sort of later on. You've got to set aside money first. So the reason I started podcasting is to have a way to speak to my children, you know, uh, as they grow up and hopefully they'll one day listen to it. Um, and uh, that sort of, you know, grew into a channel, I guess. Um, and that's how it all started. Yeah. I think it's awesome the actual the way you do it as well because like you said, if, if someone is going to go and look at your podcast, they need to go back um, or they can look anywhere but if they go back to the start, they're going to get that real funda fun foundational information um, but then you build on it with different concepts as you go. So, it's kind of like a smorgasbord of stuff you can choose and, and listen to and I've picked out, I've listened to a bunch of it. It's, it's pretty cool. Um, you do uh, have a key message that you try to get across, particularly in the intro of your every single podcast. It's about five steps you can use. Can you tell us about those five steps? Yeah, so um, the five steps are pretty simple that anyone can use um, starting tomorrow. Um, and this is assuming they don't have consumer debt and this is also assuming that they've got some emergency funds. But it's not very, not very complicated. Step one. You must pay yourself first. What does that mean? You've got to take a set percentage of your after-tax income and put it aside. That is your money not to be touched ever again until you retire. Now, how much? I say 20%. Um, now, if you can't do 20%, do 5%, 10%. doesn't matter, but build it up to 20%. Some of my listeners have 50% as they will. doesn't matter. Step two is you take that 20% of your after-tax income that you put aside and you must use that money to invest in something that you understand, whether you're saving up for an investment property, whether you're saving up to invest in the share market or maximizing super, it doesn't matter. You must invest that money. In other words, you can't put it in the bank account and let it sit in the bank account like one of my listeners did up until recently. $350,000 sitting in the bank account for the last five years doing nothing. Um, bad, bad move. Step three is uh, once you start um, putting that money aside, hopefully that generates some returns in terms of dividends. 
um, basically income that's generated from your investment. So if you buy an investment property, you get rental, you must take that rental income and use it to perhaps pay off your own mortgage or use it to create more investment. So you must reinvest those dividends. So always don't don't cash out the dividends, reinvest them. And step four, you must do this for the long term. So for your dental student that's listening, they must do it for at least 20 years. Uh, ideally, the longer the better. I say 20, 30, if not 40 years. Not the seven years, not the 10 years, not the 15 years, but start early and go hopefully forever. And the last step is you have to automate that. That is that you don't have to manually do all this yourself. Once you set up a structure, once you set up a system, that happens automatically. So to give you an example, I get paid once a week and on that payday, BPay is set up to take 20% of my income and then straight it goes to Vanguard. Uh, I get paid at 8 p.m. and by midnight, that money is gone. The reason for that is I can't spend money that I don't see um, and I don't have to think about it, whether it's a pandemic, whether I've got sore throats, whether I'm you know, working 15-hour days or whatever, it happens behind the background. And if you just did that, those five simple steps, then you're likely, irrespective of superannuation, um, you're likely to end up pretty wealthy uh, or at least more wealthy than what you are today. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, It sounds so simple, but it's so profound. And when you look at the actual statistics of what that will become if you do that, it, it's... it's um, uh, amazing actually i think being i'm a, obviously a young dentist i've been uh, practicing since my fourth year and just watching my just my super um accumulate even simple as that and it's only been a few years and it's it's yeah it makes you realize how quick this can change super superannuation is a wonderful system we're very lucky to have it in australia and a lot of people that contact me about investment advice I can tell you right now, are not maximizing their super. And I say, well, hang on. Before you take money and put it into index funds and ETFs and all these cool things, have you put $25,000 into your super as pre-tax income? They're like, nah. Well, (laughs) then do that first because that gives you an instant tax-effective way of saving for your retirement. Um, So super is a magnificent thing that if you harness the power and did nothing else, uh, whether you're a doctor or a dentist, you just put money into your super and nothing else, then you're still likely to end up much better than what you are. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of that's a really important point actually for dentists because most dentists are um, contracting to the business, so they um, they earn their the amount of money. No one's paid them super, and then I know many people who don't pay themselves any super and it's crazy because they're in the top tax bracket so they're paying whatever that is 45 47 whatever the percentage um instead of paying the 15 percent tax they can on that twenty five thousand. correct um and i don't think they realize that 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 amount of savings it's it's incredibly large amount of money and why isn't that taught in dental school or medical school i don't know (laughs) Yeah, I agree. just one lecture from you would, uh, yeah, would be pretty useful to be honest. Um, <laughs> they, you know, what I was speaking with someone on the podcast just recently, and they're they're talking a little bit more about the practice stuff, stuff that we don't really get taught in dental school. Um, and I think they're incorporating a tiny little bit of this, which is really really cool. Um, what about just get your opinion on um, withdrawing from superannuation in COVID? Yeah, interesting. Um, Look, I think um, I'm not a great fan of um, touching money that's meant to be used for retirement. So superannuation at its core, the function is for people to, um, you know, stay off the pension when they retire. That's what it's designed to do. 
Um, and uh, I know the government have meddled with it in the past. Uh, I'm not a great fan of touching your superannuation. Yes, you can take $10,000 last financial year and $10,000 this financial year, and it's all tax-free, and you can do you know fancy things with it. Uh, unfortunately, if you have a look at the stats, a lot of people have touched their super for really, really silly reasons, like buying furniture and you know, going for um, uh, you know mini holidays when the lockdowns were over you know a few weeks ago, all that sort of stuff. To me, that is not what super is designed to do. Super is designed to protect your wealth in your retirement so that you can earn uh, a good living in your retirement and uh, and hopefully don't have to rely on the government pension. Um, so not a great fan of it. Having said that, if you're absolutely desperate, uh, um, I, and I know that a lot of dentists, unfortunately, due to COVID, have been severely impacted. Um, I mean, basically, everything that you guys do is aerosolizing procedure. So, um, you know, uh, uh, you guys are... Uh, definitely frontline and, and high risk. Um, so if you you know if you've got a significantly reduced income and you can't make ends meet, then uh, yes, uh, I think super is probably the only option, um, especially if you're going to have to take out loans or something. So I'd much rather touch the super rather than get consumer debt or personal loans. But, David, if someone is touching their super at this time, that means they have not done their legwork in terms of emergency funds. So, um, And that's the irony behind it. If someone has had to touch super, um, and this is why for all the young people um, that's listening uh, uh, to David's podcast and listening to this interview, for the dental students, for the medical students, or whoever you are, whatever student you are, um, this is exactly what not to do. And to prevent that, you must save money. You must pay yourself first and you must start early. Um, but at its core, not a great fan, but I know that um, some people are severely affected and I appreciate that um, that they may have to. Yeah, of course. There are certainly people who need to in certain situations and that it's been a lifeline for those people if they're using it correctly. Absolutely. Um, tell us about emergency funds. What's your goal there? Yeah, so emergency funds. So uh, my, my sort of personal, um, so I have a, you know, two two tier emergency fund. One is the thousand dollar emergency fund for your leaking roof or your flat tire, etc. Um, and that's got to be, you know, that's not invested money. That, you know, that has got to be in a separate account that is ready to go, liquid cash, ready to take out whenever you want to do. So, um, emergency funds should never be invested. Now, if it's sitting in your offset account, that's fine. I can live with that because that's kind of liquid cash. Um, if it's sitting in your redraw then to me that's not fine because, you know, technically the bank can change rules and, you know, take that redraw money because especially in COVID times, the banks potentially some of them are struggling, the smaller ones, so they can take the money. So it's got to be in your offset account, which is sort of shielded and protected. Now, there is a second emergency fund, which is, you know, your broader emergency fund, uh, which uh, a lot of people may have had to tap into during COVID times, and that is, you know, the average sort of people say three to six months of expenses saved up sitting in a bank account or in your offset account. Now, my sort of feeling about that is I don't do expenses. Uh, if, if, if you notice, even my pay yourself first, I don't do 20% of gross income. I do 20% of after-tax income because that's reality. That's the money that you see. So I say three to six months of income should be in your emergency funds. Now, that is extremely aggressive or conservative, whichever way you look at it. Um, it's not easy to achieve. Um, it is achievable. Ideally, if you had 12 months, that's even better. But if you had three to six months of income, let's say COVID times and COVID hit in March, 
then you're relatively secure up until about September. Um, and you can still live the same life that you currently live. Now, if you had to touch your emergency fund, I'm sure you will start cutting down expenses. Um, and therefore, you could make that six-month income emergency fund to stretch out to nine months even. But you can see how that would come in significantly handy during this time. So, uh, yeah, so basic $1,000 fund. Um, and then you've got your three to six months of income set aside. Most people have it set against their mortgage as an offset account. That's completely fine. I don't do three to six months of just expenses. That's a really good point, and it does take you time to build that up. Um, I guess do you pour, would you recommend people partition partition sorry that um, amount that they're taking um, paying themselves first? Are they paying some into this emergency fund or all into the emergency fund until they get there? Yeah. So so what I personally did was I built up my emergency fund um, before I started doing anything else. You know, I guess you know buying a house. Um, I probably would buy a house. Um, uh, you know, before I had the whole six months of income emergency fund, because remember, you got to pay, you know, say for the deposit and things like that. Um, but I was very aggressive. Um, as soon as I became an intern and resident, I was very aggressive in terms of trying to build up my income. So my income was not the average intern or residence income. Uh, I did work extra shifts. Um, Medical workforce love me because whenever they texted me, <laughs> yep, I never say no. Um, and I have been known to take annual leave and locum my own shifts that they couldn't fill at the Royal Melbourne Hospital. So uh, <laughs> to me, that's opportunity cost. Um, you know, why Why are you okay? Five weeks annual leave. Hey, look, I don't need five weeks annual leave. Give me, give me maybe three weeks annual leave and I'll locum the other two weeks, which is my own annual leave. So I get double income. So, um, uh, so <laughs> I have done that early in my career. Uh, don't do that very much nowadays, but uh, that's how I built up my emergency fund very, very quickly. Yeah, that's it's, it's pretty smart. I guess you've got to balance that with burnout, um, which we talk a lot about on this podcast as well. But um, I think most dentists kind of get out and they're just ready to run like six days, give us eight days a week. We'll just work, work, work. And then you do that for like two months and you realize how hard it is. Um, That's right. But yeah, no, it's, it's sustainable, fantastic. of course, in the long run. Well, yeah. Oh, certainly, certainly. Um, you, you mentioned opportunity costs. Um, I've heard you talk a little bit about this. Tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, so you know, opportunity cost is um, you, you, you can you can uh, you know if you had a hundred dollars, um, if you went and um, you know spent hundred bucks in a beautiful meal when you enjoyed that meal, um, what else could you have done with that hundred bucks? That is your opportunity cost, right? Now you can use that concept in uh, money. You can use that concept in time. Um, you can use that concept in pretty much anything in life um, you know uh, if you want to bought a particular product what is your opportunity cost of buying another product now so using you know medicine and dentistry as an example the biggest opportunity cost for dentists and doctors is training time so training time is a killer I uh, so you know for medicine it's five to six years of undergraduate training or four years of uh, uh, pre-med school and then you've got to do postgraduate training which is another four years so you're looking at about sort of 11 to 15 years before you achieve a consultancy, whether it's a general practice consultancy or physician consultancy or a surgical consultancy. Then you've got to do fellowship for one or two years if you want to do super specialties like cardiothoracics or neurosurgeon. So you're looking at sort of, you know, 11 to 15 years of your life starting from medical school, that is your opportunity cost. For dentists, probably around 11 years, right? So that is opportunity cost in terms of time. So um, my aim is to tell the budding dentist and the budding medical student um, and doctor 
to try and use that time wisely in investing in themselves, which they're doing to get an education, but also as they earn the income, start investing in finances, in terms of knowledge, in terms of trying to, uh, you know, not borrow too much money, um, you know, invest in the share market or whatever they feel comfortable with. So that at the other end of the training, once you become a orthodontist, um, you don't look back and say, oh my God, um, I'm an orthodontist. I'm going to make a lot of money. But the last 11 years, I've got nothing to show for. Um, so, uh, and then only in 10, 15, 20 years to actually accumulate that, which is much harder because you're not compounding as long. Absolutely, yeah. I think Dave Ramsey talks about it, that if someone started investing at age of 18 and then stopped investing at 26 and then their brother starts at investing at 27 and does it for the entire rest of the time for another <laughs> yes. 30 years, the person who started at 18 years and stopped at 26 still makes more money in the long run than the person who started at 27. Now, if you can understand that concept early in your life, um, then uh, you will understand compound interest and I guess you'll understand opportunity costs very, very quickly. Yeah, that, that, that I remember reading that just being uh, amazed by it. That might actually be in Barefoot or um, one of those oh, as well. Oh, it's multiple examples, it's, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's fascinating stuff. I've also heard you talk about income per unit time. Um, yes. Can you tell us a bit about that as well? Yeah, so I actually learned this from one of my um, uh, uh, uh Colleagues, uh, although we don't really catch up, uh, and I won't mention their name, but if they're listening, hello, because uh, this really opened my eyes to this concept of income per unit time. Let me set the scene. Um, I was a surgical registrar, um, and I was very, you know, savvy with finances, and I was earning a lot of money, um, and I was saving a lot of money. And by that time, as a surge reg, um, I would have been, you know, three years post um, buying my first home. And I'd already paid it off. I, I, I paid it off in two years, um, bought my first home in 2009, paid it off in two years, and then bought another home and paid cash. So, you know, <laughs> by, by, by the time I was a sort of a consultant, I'd, you know, paid off paid off two homes already in Melbourne. So quite That's a incredible. feat, quite a feat. Um, but I was operating and um, I think we were, uh, we were doing a laparoscopic case and the anaesthetist, um, now the anaesthetists are an interesting profession, uh, a lot of them may be listening, they fiddle around with a lot of monitors and stuff but they do have a lot of time on their hands, particularly <laughs> behind the scenes and I sort of said, hey mate, what, what are you up to? Like well, you're sort of you know, on your phone and he goes, income per unit time and I said, oh, what do you mean? And he, he said, Dev, um, the, the problem with surgeons is that while you're operating, that is your income per unit time. You, you can't do anything else while you're operating. But for the good thing about an ethetist is while I'm doing this, I'm looking at you know property, I'm looking at investments, I'm share trading, whatever it is. So what income per unit time is for one hour or whatever unit time that you have, or one day, for example, you've got your earned income and you must have another source of income that's coming through. And over time, the income by unit time may be exactly the same or more over time, but the amount of earned income, the percentage of earned income over time becomes less and less and less, and the percentage of passive income becomes more and more and more. It's a very, very powerful concept. And I thought to myself, man, I'm doing all this training. Um, you know, I, I sort of trained, trained in surgery for a bit, then I sort of... Um, you know, uh, for um, sort of personal reasons, dropped out of training and then did general practice. And I went, this guy, has he's worked it all out. Um, he, 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 Here I was thinking that surgeons make loads of money and all that sort of stuff. So if you ask the average community member, hey, do you think a surgeon makes more than an anaesthetist? They'll say, yeah, of course they do. 
But what he understood was earned income is not all income. Um, and I think we need to think about um, every, every hour that you do something has a cost, that's your opportunity cost. Um, so if I'm, you know, if, if, I'm, if I'm working for an hour, what else is happening in terms of income generation in the background? That could be investment properties or share trading, whatever it is. So I really have to thank, thank him for that. Um, and I started working on diversifying my income, not just earning money through earned income, but earning money through dividends and other investments. Yeah, yeah, that's that's fantastic. And of course, the key is dividends or, or rental from a property or whatever. It's investments that have income that then grows, and then that that passive income beats your regular income, gives you the freedom as well. It's funny you mentioned that the uh, Nethetus was was doing that, just doing share trading or looking for property. I worked for a, a oral maxillofacial surgeon before I did dentistry. I was just a um, patient coordinator and um there was, <laughs> there was an anaesthetist um that won't be named that yeah spent a lot of time i think playing video games or something else um so maybe his um income per unit time wasn't increased but uh, <laughs> he wasn't really paying too much attention so um i think that's really interesting as well because a lot of people talk now about income diversification and that's partly because of covid i guess it makes us realize that when we're not you know, working on a patient's mouth, we're not earning money. Um, do you recommend people, you know, go out and try to start a business or all this other stuff that's kind of in trend at the moment, or is it is it more, or is it simpler? Do we just invest? Yeah. So uh, I think, look, I think if you run your own business successfully, um, you're basically making money off other people's earnings, right? So if you run a dental practice, um, you know, a certain percentage goes to the dentist in terms of um, their, their billings or gross earnings, and the rest of it goes to the practice. So, um, so I completely support people that want to run businesses, um, uh, that are very good at run, running businesses. And just like anything else in life, they must be committed to it. Like, um, unfortunately, a lot of a lot of doctors start their own sort of private practice and then sort of realize, oh, my God, this is so much hassle because you've got to deal with not only the <laughs> clinical side of things, but then you've got to do rostering, um, software, security, patient complaints, and blah, blah, blah. All of a sudden, you're, you're a bit of a manager as, as well as a doctor. Uh, I assume that's the same sort of thing with exactly, dentists as well, yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, sterilization, equipment, and blah, 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 all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, look, if... If, if, that's, if that's your fancy, I would completely support that. But um, you've got to be completely committed to it um, and you've got to have a supportive family um, uh, because otherwise it just comes crashing down very, very quickly. And, of course, we've learnt in COVID times um, business income is unreliable. Um, uh, so, you know, you've got to be prepared for that. Um, but if you run a successful business, yep, that's fantastic. Um, but generally speaking, to run a successful business, it takes uh, a certain mindset to be able to do it. I've taken the lazy approach um, where I would just invest in businesses um, uh, and hopefully uh, good businesses. So I just invest in the Australian economy and the index funds and all that sort of stuff and try and uh, earn some winnings off the back of hard work of other people. Um, that's a very lazy sort of approach to it. <laughs> now, the the good thing about it is that um, I'm not a businessman. I, I, I don't know how to run a business. I'm not very good at, you know, running businesses. I'm not business savvy. Um, so, But I still get a bit of a return by investing in index funds or ETFs, etc. But the returns may not be as great as, you know, someone who starts a dental practice or medical practice or starts a, you know, 
uh, a company. You know, like for example, now a lot of people. I mean, if you if you go to um, packaging companies, guess what they're selling? They're selling face shields um, because they've capitalised on the face shield market. They've capitalised on the mask market. They've capitalised um, on um, you know cleaning products and things like that for uh, for packages. So if you're entrepreneurial, that's a fantastic opportunity to make. Uh, a quick buck, um, but um, but but to do nothing, to just save money and not do anything with it, that is a recipe for disaster. Um, because you know, cash is not king. Um, uh, I I I tell you this interesting story that one of the nurses told me um, a few years ago. She said to me, "Dev, um, I got a great tax return," um, and she was really happy about it. And I said, "Why are you happy about it?" She said. I'm getting some money. And I said, well, what you've actually done is you've given the money to the government for free and they've just given <laughs> it back to you 12 months later and guess what? Now the money is worth 3% less. And she looked at me sort of... You burst her bubble. Yeah, she went, actually, that's a good point, right? Because, I mean, if you, if you, you know, the average person who receives a tax return is very happy. But what they don't realise is the government is basically taking their money for their own purposes and gave it back and now they've got 3% less. Um, so cash is not king. Uh, if you're getting too much of a tax return, that's a bad thing. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, it's a sort of change in mindset for people to understand that. Anyway, she, she sort of realised, Michelle, actually, you got a very good point. Why am I so happy, damn it? Um, so, uh, in fact, the reason why she got a tax return was even worse. She asked her employer to withhold more tax and she said, that's a forced saving for me. And I said, no, money is always better uh, in your own hands, not in someone else's hands. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good lesson. I think I've definitely been through that. I remember being so happy about my tax return. <clears throat> and in hindsight, yeah, I was just overpaying in tax. Um, you actually raise a really good point. So, we're talking about potentially, you know, you could take the risk of starting a business or take the the pressures of, of starting maybe a side income and the 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 difficulty is to make that actually profitable. Ask me how I know how. Um, but if you just do the what you call the lazy way, which is investing in shares or a Vanguard, um, we'll, we'll probably touch on Vanguard because you've mentioned a few times, um, ETFs, you, you are actually buying part of a business and therefore you are actually kind of doing the same thing without having as much of the headache and perhaps not as much of you know the upside return potentially. Um, a lot of people are looking at the share market and they've just seen the most crazy year ever. Mm. Um, what are your thoughts on what's going on? Yeah, so um, look, I sort of um, uh, kind of lived through the GFC. Um, uh, I was actually doing cardiothoracics at the time and I remember my boss was absolutely furious when the GFC happened because he'd lost a lot of money um, and it got me thinking and I went, you know what, I I actually like the GFC. I mean, I didn't tell him that it's obviously that, that's one thing for dental students and medical <laughs> students. Never talk back to your boss. <laughs> your boss is always <laughs> right. So, um, so I sort of thought to myself, well, you know, obviously he's very upset because he's in his sort of fifties. Um, you know, he's lost a lot of money. He's got another ten years to retire, etc. But I've got another forty years to retire. I, I want the market to be low. Uh, I'm actually a little bit upset that the market's come back up to 5,900 or 6,000 points already from 7,200, I think it was, in January. So I sort of have been consistently investing, you know, for, for now, oh, this is my 11th year of investing, so over 10 years. Um, and I sort of don't pay attention to the stock market, you know, on a day-to-day -day trend. 
because um, I've automated everything. So on a set specific day every week, money just taken out of my account and goes straight into Vanguard. And if you did that for a long term, you can just dollar cost average your way into the market. Uh, yes, sometimes you, you pay a little bit too much when the market's a bit high, um, but other times um, the market is quite low and you buy more. In fact, from 2009 to 2013, the market hardly moved. The ASX hardly moved. And at the time, I sort of thought to myself, well, maybe I should, you know, retrospectively, I really should have invested you know, a lot more money back in the day. But initially when I started investing, when I sort of didn't really fully understand it, I sort of went, man, I've put all this money in, nothing's really happened for the you know, next three months or six months, nothing's really happened. Retrospectively, that was fantastic because nothing happened is good. And in fact, uh, the market crashing in 2020 is good, obviously not good for a lot of older Australians who are ready to retire and it's a very sad thing for them. But for younger people, um, yeah, it doesn't really matter. In fact, yesterday I got a question, hey, Dev, I've saved up $15,000. When is a good time to invest? <laughs> and I said, well, a good time to invest is when you have money. It's, it's not, it's not um, invest in July or, you know, uh, sell off in May and all that sort of stuff. Just invest it. As soon as you've got the money, put it away because, you know, who knows? The next iPhone might come and you might end up accidentally <laughs> buying it. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. That's such. Um, when you learn the how profoundly simple it can be to do something like dollar cost average and to just not even have to worry is so. It's actually. Um, you, you, I felt a bit relieved to think, oh, that's a very simple way that I'm going to do it. Um, for people that aren't really sure what we're talking about, dollar cost averaging means putting a set amount of money in at a set amount of time in a set thing and just not worrying about it. So you do it every Monday, or you do it every month, or you do it every quarter, and it's a set amount and it just happens. And that's what. Um, Dev was talking about with Vanguard. It's an ETF um, that he, he chooses to invest in, and it just happens automatically. That's right. And and when the market goes down, the thousand dollars that you invest a week, for example, just use as an example, when the market goes down, that thousand dollars buys more, you know, units or shares um, uh, in in the share market. When the market goes up, the thousand dollars. You know, it gets a little bit less, comparatively speaking. But over time that sort of averages out. Yeah. And guess what? Yeah. Everyone who's an employee in Australia, full-time or part-time, dollar cost averages. You know how? Superannuation. They put money into their superannuation. We all do it, but no one's actually told us that we're doing it. And, and when people think about timing the market now with that, it's like, well, if you just dollar cost average over like the last 10 years, you'd be happy no matter what. So if you just do it now, although short-term, it might not feel as good if it goes down in the future. It'll probably be really good in 20 years. Absolutely. I mean, in the 90s, when I first came to Australia, I mean, not that I knew anything about finances, but retrospectively, I think the All Ordinaries was less than 1,000. Yeah, um, yeah. And today it's over 6,000. Uh, and I guess my question is, how could you ever lose money? Um, uh, the ASX started in the year 2000 at 3,000 points. Now it's 6,000. How could you lose money? Um, and you only lose money if you jump off the roller coaster, as Dave Ramsey says, in the middle of the roller coaster. And no one ever does that <laughs> in real life, except in finances, they do it all the time. That brings us to behavioral finance and um, why, why is behavior so important? I guess you just answered it, but is there anything you want to add to that? Um, I, think, uh, I think one of the things is you need to learn behaviors early in life. And, and that is... That is very, very important in all aspects of life. 
um, but it is also important in personal finance. So what do we do when we all get up? Uh, I'm on a dental podcast, so the first thing I do, David, <laughs> is I brush my teeth, right? And I've been doing it all my life because my parents taught me how to do it when I was a, when I was a child, and I've, uh, I brush my teeth before I go to bed. Um, you know, ideally brush your teeth after every meal, all that sort of stuff. These are all habits that we teach our children, hopefully get taught to us, our parents taught to us. Um, and that habitual behavioural sort of pattern has to extend to personal finance. Um, so, and strangely enough, it doesn't. And um, I, I'm not sure why, but I, I, of course, you have people like yourself and, uh, and myself and other podcasters out there, our quest is, you know, I, I, I'm not out there spruiking, you know, listen to my podcast, I make a lot of money. I'm out there spruiking, listen to my podcast because in 50 years' time, if you open up Devraga Personal Finance Podcast <laughs> Episode 1, that episode will still be true 50 years from now or 100 years from now, and that is you must pay yourself first, and that's timeless. Yeah, I love it. We had a question um, on Instagram. So, if, if anyone's listening, we post on Instagram, we post on our Facebook group to ask for questions. And, and someone um, asked a, a pretty good question, which is, um, what are the best resources for someone without a clue to learn about managing finances? Yeah, so... Apart from your podcast. Yeah, of course. Everyone <laughs> should listen to my... No, just kidding. You must all listen to my podcast. Look, most of the things that I learned um, in finances uh, actually, believe it or not, was from YouTube. Um, and, uh, you know, the concept of dividends, there's plenty of resources on YouTube. If, if you just go on YouTube tonight and, uh, and sort of just um, search for investing principles... Um, you'll just see plenty of videos. Um, you know, I, I, I love watching Killick & Co., which is a great channel. Um, I listen to a number of podcasts, everything from Tony Robbins to Susie Orman to Dave Ramsey to White Coat Investor um, to your podcast and, 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 and plenty of others. Um, it's, it's about, um, it's about uh, yeah, look, I, I think audio media and video media are probably very useful in, in, in today's world. Uh, and, of course, what I wouldn't do is read the newspaper for <laughs> investing or financial information because the newspaper is designed to sell copies and readerships and the more they sensationalise things, the more they sell. So that's a very bad sort of uh, uh, medium to sort of learn basic financial principles. Having said that, I, I do read uh, uh, Noel Whitaker's section in The Age. I, I think it's absolute genius. You know, letters letters about finances is very, very good. And of course, if you're a good reader, and, and I'm, I'm not a great reader, but, um, you know, financial books, you know, um, you know, um, uh, random walk down Wall Street and things like that, I, I, I don't really particularly love reading. Um, so, I'm not a great consumer of that, but there's plenty of books, Tony Robbins' book, Dave Ramsey's book, um, all about focusing on principles. But most of the information that I got, believe it or not, was from YouTube and podcasting. Um, and then, of course, Googling and, and sort of, you know, basic reading. You know, Investopedia is very good as well, and even Wikipedia. Like, you'd be surprised what good information you get from Wikipedia. Uh, for all you dental students out there preparing for your final exams, Wikipedia. I mean, what a legendary resource that is. Something that kind of didn't exist 20 years ago. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, I think, um, well, my, particularly my generation, we got through because of it. So, thank you to Wikipedia. Um, 
I've read a lot of books while driving an hour to one of the practices I work at um, via Audible. So I'd recommend everyone <laughs> get stuck into some of these. And all this these information will be in the show notes, of course. Um, if you are driving, just uh, look at the, the website afterwards. Tell us about some of the, the tougher times or maybe the mistakes that you've had with investing yourself. Um, yeah, so uh, I guess I guess I'll break that up into two sort of segments. Um uh, in terms of tough times, um, uh, in terms of you know personal finance itself, um, when I was in medical school, um, you know I I had to work. Um, and medical school is pretty full on in terms of you know contact hours and all that sort of stuff, preclinical um, and clinical hours. So um, and I did my medical school in Tasmania, and of course when you have a lot of contact hours in medical school, the amount of the amount of time that you have to work, for example, weekends or after hours, etc., is um, is quite low. So I did a lot of tutoring um, and I very quickly realised that if you're a tutor, your income per unit time, and at the time I didn't realise that statement, the income per unit time, for whatever reasons, tutors get paid a lot of money. Um, so at the time I think I earned like 60 bucks an hour or something like that tutoring uh, at the hostel that I was staying and also at, uh, at medical school I was tutoring junior, junior years. Um, and, uh, you know, things weren't easy because, you know, trying to pay your electricity bill and your water bill, and I, I never moved out of house prior to that. I, I grew up in Adelaide and my parents were in Melbourne at the time. So it was tough in terms of trying to learn how to actually do things in terms of managing personal finances physically. Now they've got income coming in um, and, um, you know, outgoings as well. And I, what, what, one of the things at Tasmania those days for whatever reason, electricity was very expensive um, and uh, and I would always be worried. It would, it would always petrify me that the electricity bill, because uh, Tassie gets really cold, right, you know, the heaters and stuff, they don't have many gas heaters, everything's electricity, even cooktops and things. Um, I would always be worried that I would not be able to pay my electricity bill. Um, and uh, and I had this, you know, uh, bizarre sort of habit of turning off the water heater, heater at night and then getting up really early in the morning and turning it on to make sure that there's hot water before I have a shower, before I go to, you know, go to, go to lectures, etc. Um, reflecting on that now, um, uh, yeah, times were pretty tough at the time in terms of income, etc., but I made it work. Um in terms of investing, um, I guess because I've been a relatively consistent, lazy investor, and that is just invest in index funds and the stock market over the long term, um, I don't emotionally trade. I don't. I haven't sold anything that I've bought over the last 10 years, um, including properties and index funds. So I don't think that's a mistake. But I didn't invest aggressively um, in the early days, um, you know, back in 2008, 2009, because I was sort of starting out and learning, etc. And the biggest regret, um, you know, when's a good time to invest? Yesterday. When's the next best time <laughs> to invest? Today. So uh, probably the biggest regret is that when the market crashed, I didn't plough money into it as much as I probably should have, knowing uh, where the market is today. But uh, that would that would be the single biggest regret. I mean, I, I, if I had if I had ploughed money. In 2008, 2009, into the share market, um, or oh, well, 2007, 2008, 2009, really dollar-costed average, 
you know, that would have potentially translated, David, into, you know, several million dollars today, potentially, um, you know, because I had a decent income and I was just a bit too focused on paying off that mortgage. Um, at the time, interest rates were about 9% for my mortgage. So, you know, it was a pretty good return if I paid it off. But, gee, had I invested into the stock market, um, you know, uh, you know, then I would have ended up better. But, you know, like all things in life, hindsight's always twenty twenty. Um so that would be probably my, my biggest regret. Yeah. Uh, it's um, <laughs> while you're working three locum jobs at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Why didn't I invest in while I was here yeah, working 100 hours a day? <laughs> um, you, you raise a good point. We've all got that experience um, with being worried about and being poor. When I was traveling, I lived in New Zealand and they um, it's really cold in New Zealand when you live in a ski town to be at the snow, but they have no insulation so we as a group of people living there we decided that we weren't going to use the floor heating um and the house was like open window like it, it was cold and um yeah i'll always remember that we just didn't turn it on all season and we froze all season we wore our snow gear inside um so yeah very relevant uh story to that you've done a lot of the right things though like um starting early being quite aggressive with your investing living well within your means what mistakes do you see young professionals making that we might not have already covered um i think i think the biggest mistakes probably is that uh, obviously not not starting early uh, and and i mean starting when they're at university not starting mm. when they become a dentist or when they become a doctor because by that time it's too late um you know really trying to hone down i mean i guess i'm not saying they need to invest a lot of money but they need to get into the habit of investing something um, so that um, uh, those habits can live on uh, for the rest of their lives. It's all about building habits. I'm reading a book at the moment called Profit First and it's actually a business book but it's so relevant to what you're talking about. It's it's pay yourself first from your business um, but they say, look, start with 1% and it's like, well, why can't you do that? And then you can just change that as you go and you can grow. So I just wanted to add that because I find that really, really resonates, and I wish I knew it when I was a lot more, well, a bit younger. Yeah, so. absolutely. And 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 look, a lot of lot of um, you know, young young doctors feel, oh, look, I'm an intern, uh, I'm a resident, I only earn, you know, uh, you know, sixty or hundred thousand dollars. That's not enough to invest. Um, well, you know, if you earn a hundred grand in Australia, you're above average. Um, so uh, I know a lot of doctors, unfortunately, whinge. Um, I shouldn't say winch, but they sort of complain about low income. But comparatively speaking, uh, and including dentists, we're on a pretty good wicket. Um, so you don't need a lot of money to start investing. Um, and the other mistake that I find, obviously, we talked a little bit about lifestyle creep. You know, don't go out and buy a car. Please don't lease a car. Um, <laughs> I just, I, it just mind boggles the number of questions that I get about, oh, should I lease a car? Should I do this? Should I do that? If you're using it for personal purpose, please don't lease a car. Try and buy a car outright uh, if you can or buy a car that's affordable. You, you don't need to get the new Mercedes um, as soon as you graduate uh, in dentistry or med school. So cars is something that uh, it's just absolute wealth killers. And, and look, if you bought an expensive car, let me be very clear, as an intern or a budding dentist, that's going to set you back 10 to 15 years in terms of opportunity cost. That money that you spend on buying a $60,000, $70,000 car at that early stage in your career is going to set you back 10 to 15 years. Um, it's it's just not worth it and you'll, you'll just be kicking yourself. But the other thing is 
pay attention to fees. Um, now, recently on my Facebook page, I put a put up a little quote. Um, one someone just contacted me because I did a I did an episode on superannuation, and I said everyone should look at their superannuation statement and see if there is something called advisor fees, right? So, um, and of course, this person did. And you know what? They were being charged 1% on advisory fees per annum over the last umpteen years um, that they've been a doctor. So they contacted me and they said, hey, look, you told me to check the advisory fees. And guess what? My super fees was around 0.72% per annum. But then there was this advisory fee. And lo and behold, they asked me to sign something once a year and I signed it for all these years and I've just told them, what advice are you providing? And they couldn't answer that question. So I told them, well, you're charging me too much. And you know what they did? They stopped the advisory fee. They didn't charge the doctor anymore. Um, and all the doctor had to do was check their superannuation statement. Um, so pay attention to fees. Um, you know, just because it's 1% or 2% or 3%. If you have a 3% fee on your investment, you can lose up to 60% of your wealth by the time that you retire. Um, and I guess, you know, my, my Vanguard fee is 0.16% um, uh, per annum. And, and I think that's too high. So I've actually emailed Vanguard, hey, look, I can you just reduce it just for me? <laughs> but they said no. Um, Come on, I so, keep talking about it on a podcast. Yeah, exactly. Why yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, but um, you know, 0.16% is, is, is my management fee. If someone is paying 3%, are they telling me they're getting 20 times the return of me? 20 times the return of the Australian stock market. Now, if they are, good on them, continue paying the 3% fee, but 99.9% .9 of the time they won't be. Yeah, it's um, yeah. Fees are so important when you look at the numbers over long term. Like you said, um, or for instance, buying the car where sixty, seventy thousand will cost you ten plus years. Like if you actually look at the numbers, it doesn't sound right when you think when you first hear it because we're we're linear thinkers. But it's it's an exponential rate of change, and it's um, you know at over thirty years, it's it's huge. So you've mentioned it a few times uh, the Vanguard that you um, invest in. It's obviously an ETF. I'm going to get a hundred questions about this. So uh, can you just tell us what you you personally invest in? Yeah. So so I, I actually I don't invest in the ETF version of the Vanguard, and the reason for that is because um, uh, with ETFs you need uh, a broker, so you need something like Self Wealth or something like that. Although Vanguard uh, have gone into the brokerage um, uh, sort of industry at the moment. I think if you sign up to Vanguard, it's called Personal Ser Personal Investor Cert service i think it's called i just invest in the asx 300 vanguard wholesale index fund um and i guess i guess it's probably worthwhile talking about the basic difference between an etf and an index fund very quickly an index fund is like a christmas hamper with all the goodies in the all the goodies in the christmas hamper and you can buy it once at the end of the day Okay, you can't buy it during the day. You can't buy it when the stock market's open. The final price of that is determined at the end of the day. For that to happen, you don't need a broker. You just buy it directly, and I just buy it directly via Vanguard. You don't need to buy Vanguard. You can buy iShares, and they have index funds. You can have um, uh, MSCI, World Index Fund, whatever it is. You know, choose a company, buy the index. Happy days, enjoy. Right. ETFs, on the other hand, basically um, institutional investors decided to create exchange-traded funds. Uh, I think the first one was created in Canada back in the 90s uh, because they realized that you can't just, you know, you can't trade index funds uh, uh, except for that one time at the end of the day. We need to be able to trade them during the day. So let's create a product where an ETF 
tracks an index and that index and that ETF becomes the Christmas hamper, except this time I buy the Christmas hamper and then Dave, you buy it off me and then you sell it to someone else and they sell it and you can do it multiple times during the day. Um, that is an ETF, okay? So um, now because I don't, I don't trade, in other words, I don't buy and sell. In fact, I, I don't sell at all um, and I, I don't trade investments. I just keep buying. And to me, it just made sense to just keep buying and it was just easier for me to automate BPay investments uh, from my net bank all the way into the Vanguard um, uh, ASX wholesale fund. ETFs are completely fine, nothing against them. Um, uh, that is just a different way of doing it. You can still do exactly what I'm doing with an ETF, um, except each time you buy, you need to have a brokerage fees. So self-wealth is $9.50 or $9.90 or whatever it is. Um, Commonwealth Bank is 30 bucks. So I guess the reason why I didn't do it initially is because, for example, if you bought a $500 parcel of, you know, Vanguard ETF, if I'm spending, you know, 10 or $20 of that 500 bucks to brokerage, you can imagine it would add up on uh, add up in terms of the percentage of fees because you've got to factor in brokerage costs for your fees as well. Um, so those are the two differences. So I just basically invest in the Vanguard uh, ASX 300. Um, again, uh, uh, technically, I mean, I, I don't invest outside of Australia. Um, and the reason for that is, um, you know, uh, uh, and I'm sure different people have different views. I like to invest in things that I understand. I don't invest outside of Australia just like I don't buy property outside of Australia. I don't buy property outside of Melbourne because I'd like to go and see my property. I'd like to touch and feel it. So I tend to invest in the Australian market because I believe in the Australian market and I think the Australian market mirrors global markets, but it is only 2% of the entire market in the world. So technically, I've got some country risk in that in terms of investments. Um, and, um, and I just do it all directly via Vanguard um, and I've done it for years. It's um, you, one of the things you mentioned is that you're doing it via, directly via Vanguard and you're B-paying it. And I think one of the differences, um, uh, I'll explain and please correct me if I'm wrong, but with the way you're doing it, you can B-pay it directly. Correct. In. With um, ETFs, you could technically B-pay your share trading account and then purchase it, but you have to manually do the second part. I believe so, yes. I've never really understood why they haven't had a system to automate that i'm not sure why i uh, presumably because as a middleman but 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 i guess with vanguard's personal investor service which i'm not subscribed to because i started before that uh i'm not sure whether that feature is available last time i asked them i don't think that feature is available if you wanted to buy the vanguard etf by the uh, personal investor service um but um but hopefully they'll institute that because it, it just makes sense because otherwise you got to manually do it it's just a real pain yeah, exactly. Well, I, I kind of enjoy that part, but fair enough. We're, we're a bit different there. The other thing is there's a minimum investment, I think, for starting out in the wholesale. So, if people are interested, yeah, I think so that I might think, be the case. Yeah, that's right. So, the minimum at the moment, uh, they they got about $500,000, although I, th I think you can get in for much less than that. But I think if you sign up, Dave, to um, the personal investor service, all those minimums go out the window. I'm pretty sure yeah, okay. that you can so choose. Way in. Yeah, so you can just you can just subscribe to the personal investor service. But of course, part of that is there's a 0.2% administrative fee, which is a sneaky charge, which which is a very you know dodgy, well, I wouldn't say dodgy, but it's it's a bit a bit of a bizarre thing. But I've sort of calculated that if you have about three hundred thousand dollars in investments, then that caps out to about six hundred bucks, and that's the maximum they're going to charge in terms of admin fee. Um, and after that, I don't think they'll be charging any admin fee. And I think with Vanguard's history, um, I think the fees will come down because as more and more companies, you know, beta shares, for example, ETFs are like 0.07%. 
in terms of MER. So as more and more companies come on, just like what's happened in the US, the cost of investing um, will come down. Um, and uh, that's a good thing for investors. That's a good thing for consumers. Um, and that's a good thing for uh, everyone. Um, so I think Vanguard will reduce their fees. I think they have uh, it used to be 0.18 uh, for my uh, yeah, my index fund. I think now it's 0.16. They reduced it last year, and I think hopefully in the future they will reduce it more because they have to pay attention to competition. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's extremely popular way of doing it now. Now, if anyone's out there and they're thinking, oh, I want to know more about index funds versus ETFs or literally anything in the finance world, um, you can find more index first ETS was episode 33 on DevRaga Personal Finance. You remember <laughs> the episode, fantastic. <laughs> no, I didn't remember. I, I found it while we are talking. Um, but tell us, tell us, how can we find you? And um, I also want to say thank you so much for sharing this and all your time and all your information on your podcast. It is extremely useful. Yeah, thank you very much for having me on the podcast. Um, look, how can you find me? Um, so if you just Google Dev, D-E-V space Raga, R-A-G-A, personal finance, the first thing that usually comes up is my podcast or the Facebook page. Um, you can download my podcast using CastBox app or Anchor app um, and hopefully in the future with more um, podcasting sort of apps out there, especially Apple. I'm really trying to get into Apple, but um, I'm finding it very hard. and I'm very tech unsavvy. Um, so <laughs> hopefully, out, yeah, hopefully, hopefully they'll let me in and hopefully you'll help me out. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, and it's a free podcast. Um, uh, and, and it's basically me talking about basic principles of personal finance. Um, and, um, you know, try and cover, you know, sometimes I talk about news and also talk about if the person who asked me questions, if they're happy for me to share those questions on the podcast anonymously, then I share questions as well. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's how, that's how you find me. You can also contact me via the Facebook page. Um, a lot of people do. I'm not a financial advisor, uh, uh, and I'm not a financial planner, so I'm not qualified to give you personalized financial advice because I get that a lot. So that is something that all of you need to understand. Um, so, you know, I always say before you make financial decisions after listening to me, make sure you check with your own advisor. I'm all about teaching everyone how to fish. Because, um, because if, if I can teach you how to fish by applying those basic principles, then hopefully you will teach other people and hopefully you will prosper from that. So if, if I ask, if there's one thing that I ask my listeners is that practice it, tell your junior dentists, um, uh, tell your junior doctors, tell your dental students and medical students um, to pay attention to their finance um, and I think in our profession, uh, um, uh, David, I think you'll agree, talking about money and finance seems to be a big taboo, um, but it's a very important thing to talk about. Otherwise, um, you, know, you, you, you know, you can really uh, miss out, you really miss out. I mean, I, I've, 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 horror stories that I, that I get on uh, Facebook, people contacting me, sort of some of the things that they've done. Um, and now reflecting on that, they go, oh, my God, I can't believe I had an 11% personal loan interest rate loan uh, and I can't believe I'm asking you about financial investment advice. And I always say, well, you know, there's no point investing if you've got 11%. Personal yeah, guaranteed return just paid off. Yeah, paid off, yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's um, Look, you're, you're doing some wonderful things. I very much appreciate your time and everything you share. Everything that you have shared will be in our show notes, of course, and um, I encourage people to listen. It's fantastic. So, thank you again for your time, Dev. Thank you very much. Pleasure. And as always, everyone, please stay safe. 
CPD is expensive. Travel, time away from work, hotels, it all adds up. Imagine being able to see the content from world-renowned speakers from all over the globe. Learn about restorative, full-mouth work, communication, surgery, and tons more, all from the comfort of your own home. No travel costs, no hotels. That all exists and is getting better every day on the RIPE Academy from Restoring Excellence. For just $29 US per month, you'll get access to some of the best online content and save thousands on the real-life course equivalents. In fact, if you look really closely, you'll actually see me on there. I paid thousands for that course. It was awesome. And now it's just $29 US a month to see the same stuff. Find out more on the Ripe Dentistry Group or at restoringexcellence.com. Thank you so much for listening to the Dental Head Start podcast. I genuinely hope this is helping you become a better dentist. So if you like what you're hearing, make sure you subscribe on your podcast player and I want you to do me a favor. I want you to go to social media and share something that you've appreciated from us with one of your friends. That's how the word gets out. That's how more people gain and benefit from what we're doing. And if you're a dental student or a graduate and you want to get a head start, go to dentalheadstart.com start to find everything we're doing to help dental students become great dentists.